Hey, I hope this is going to be useful for you all. I want you to know going in, um, there's some uncomfortable things to talk about. Being part of the Remnant Church has certain obligations that go with it. Amen. And uh, sometimes we skirt around that. I enjoyed very much Sean Boonstra's uh, uh, talk the other morning to the youth at YFJ. And uh, we'll refer to that a little bit as we go on. But our message today is about the emerging church. I'm just curious, who's heard about the emerging church? Does that make any sense to anybody? Everybody's heard. Why are we here? By the way, does it make you wonder why Justin mentioned last night that this was happening at 2? Thanks. Anyway. Um, you know, one of the joys of being an Adventist, other than having that promise that someday the eastern skies will light up, as Herb would say, in a way that we've never seen before, is we also have this eschatological framework in our minds, don't we? Yeah. There are certain things that trigger our attention. Have you noticed that? Uh, how many remember maybe nine years, ten years ago? Maybe it was more than that. When evangelicals and Catholics came together, Charles Colson, Richard John Newhouse, how many of you kind of perked up when you saw that? Why? Some years later, Pope John Paul has this thing called, oh, don't tell me. Yeah. Has his letter, uh, Dies Domini, the day of the Lord. You remember that? Uh, several weeks ago, while all the world was wondering after Michael Jackson, um, <laughs> Pope Benedict came out with his third encyclical. And in that encyclical, he talks about the need for a one-world authority. And that authority needs to have teeth. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we were visiting here from, um, well, I was down here with the YFJ kids for the weekend, and Wes Vi, who was the uh, Thunderbird site coordinator. site coordinator, had the sermon. And he mentioned this, and he said, I wonder if those teeth are steel, are iron. Where did he get that? Yes. We have this in our minds of things to look for, don't we? When we think about time of the end, this is not something new to us. Uh, the disciples ask, what will be the signs of your coming? Jesus didn't give them signs. He said, don't be deceived. When you think about deception, who do you think is going to be deceived? Almost everybody. Is it difficult to deceive people who don't know anything? No. Who are the most difficult ones to deceive? The ones that know a lot, right? It's hard to trick somebody that knows what's going on. Who knows a lot about what's going on about the end time events? I mean, isn't that what we have in our minds? How will we be deceived? We've got this list of things that we're looking out for and probably more besides. We want to talk a bit about some of these things today, particularly the ecumenism, spiritualism, but mostly this deception. God has one tool in the toolbox, and that's truth. Satan has a whole host of tools in his toolbox, all the way from rank error to things that are almost true. We're all familiar with this. Through the two great errors, the immortality of the soul and sunny sacredness, Satan will bring people under his deceptions. While the former lays the foundation of spiritualism, the latter creates a bond of sympathy with Rome. Will either of these errors deceive you? No, not, not even close. How about this one? He has the power to bring before men the appearance of their departed friends. Many are comforted with the assurance of their loved ones. They are enjoying the bliss of heaven and so on. How many of you, what would you do if your old departed Uncle Joe shows up one day and starts talking? You'd run like your hair's on fire, wouldn't you? This is not going to get you. 
Great Controversy 604, a belief in spiritual manifestations opened the door to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, and thus the influences of angels will be felt, evil angels, will be felt in the churches. Does that include our church, by the way? Yeah. What I'd like you to do as we go through this today, I'd like you to keep two thoughts in mind as the backdrop. One is spiritual manifestations. One is deception. So with every slide, kind of put that in your mind and we'll go from there. This is our program for the afternoon. We're going to look at the emerging church. We're going to briefly go over the history and formation, the postmodern mindset, theology, eschatology, new spirituality, and so on. We're going to look at the intersection with Adventism because we have a history here. And it's important and interesting to see how that's happening. There is so little time to do all this. I spent a lot of time with Herb Douglas, who many of you know, and he kept telling me, you've got to cut out slides, 30 slides. You can't do it. <laughs> you ever played those card games where the only way you can win is have about 30 cards in your hand? You sort of need enough pictures to make this thing look decent. So we're going to cover a lot of stuff really quickly. The emerging church, by the way, is a difficult thing to define, and by its own definition, no one really knows where it's going. It is a conversation. Conversation is kind of an interesting term. If there's another, is there a dentist in the room? I know there's a dentist in the room. I just saw. There he is in the very back. If I were to have a conversation with another dentist, what would we talk about? Teeth, Teeth right? We'd have things to share together, right? And he'd have experiences of materials and all sorts of things, things that worked, things that didn't work, and we could have a conversation because both of us would have something to say. If I wanted to learn something about banking, I'd get a little pad of paper, and I'd get a pen, and I asked Justin, he would give me a list of propositional truths which would help me understand banking. I'd have nothing to say except maybe questions, right? Conversation is a very formative term in the emerging church. In the late 1990s, a group called Leadership Network organized a team of young pastors and thinkers to begin a conversation about how to reach postmodern culture. And they included these people. We'll hear from many of those in a few minutes. There's no way to understand the postmodern mindset. And by the way, tomorrow, Sean Booster will be giving a thing on, I think all day long, both, both morning and afternoon, on the postmodern mindset. Uh, you can't understand the emerging church without understanding the postmodern mindset. It is a subset of postmodernism. You can't understand 9-11 or post-9-11 without the term 9-11, their relational terms. You really can't understand postmodernism without briefly understanding modernism. This is very brief. Modernity rose out of the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, and rationalism. From that, we got all sorts of truth that was opened up to folks, and their whole life opened up, and they saw things completely different. Following the lead of science, which is increasingly able to explain how the world worked. You understand, as science began to explain why, when I pick this up and let go of it, it falls, uh, it began to give society tools with which to understand how their world works. These, these, these truths that they were learning were propositional in that they were always consistent. Something is really wrong here. Am I right here? Okay. <clears throat> the nice thing about propositional truth is that it holds up every place you take it. This thing, this uh, computer bag will fall to the ground whether I do it here in Phoenix or whether I do it in Sacramento or anyplace else. Because you have those sorts of propositional truths that are working in society, uh, and science began to uncover more and more in these things, the world became a place where people could 
design their own future. If I knew what bricks were going to do when I added certain things to it, I could do that anywhere and everywhere, and I could depend on it, I could manufacture it, I could predict my future. And that's a pretty good thing. It brought a lot of... It's like a really bad spot here. Modernity, uh, I think we've talked about absolute propositional truth. Anybody know what meta-narratives are? The universal vision of reality. That's kind of what we're talking about here. Truth that you find happens in my life, happens in your life. It happens in medicine that way. The transition to postmodernism began. Uh, science, once a source of absolute truth, now discovered some flexibility in truth. Uh, Microevolution with Darwin found that, subs that species that once thought were static underwent some, some adaptation. Um, I have no idea how to explain the relatively in time thing with Einstein, but Heisenberg is kind of interesting. In 1926, 1927, Heisenberg had this thing where he could discover the position of a particle in quantum physics, and he could discover the speed of that particle, but he couldn't do both at the same time. And what became apparent is that time, I'm sorry, that truth is something that's dependent on where you're standing at any given time. How many of you have kids, by the way? How many of you have kids that have uh, problems with each other? Do they explain the problem differently? They come with a different perspective and so you hear one story and the truth is always somewhere in the middle. The result of this is truth is now seen as a movable target and what happens is um, the promise of modernism didn't really produce much. There was still a world full of disease. Millions were killed in World War II and World War I. All the things that uh, we thought we could design into life didn't work so well. So along comes the postmodern mindset. The emphasis on moving beyond factual, rational to experiential and mystical. We have no absolutes in postmodernism. In fact, having no absolutes is the only thing they're absolutely sure about. There are no meta-narratives. A good example of meta-narrative is the great controversy theme. The flood story, the creation story, none of that makes any sense to a postmodern. Truth is in the mind of the beholder. My truth is different from your truth, but we all have a perspective on what truth is. Isn't that nice? We can get along great that way. What is the impact on Christianity? Truth is not absolute, but rather fluid and progressive and is a function of each person's perspective. Each person has a say in what is valid truth. Therefore, truth can be found from many sources. These sources can be from other Christian traditions or non-Christian traditions, such as Eastern religions. The modern pursuit of truth is seen by the postmodern as sterile clinical examination of facts. The postmodern longs for a deeper, richer experience to know God, not just know about God. I have a gal that works for me and from time to time. She loves the Lord a great deal, and she has an interesting perspective on this. She has been let down by her own denomination. And she said the other day, she drove me to the airport. She said, you know, I really don't want to have anything to do with religion anymore. But I want to know, I want to be more spiritual. And that's a very common thing here in the postmodern world, although she's not one. Feelings, not propositional truth, becomes the final arbiter of belief and faith. This is so critical to understand. We live in a world that, that, that's postmodern in so many ways. Uh, I don't want to be political here, but recently um, our president nominated a particular gal for, uh, not gal, uh, woman for Supreme Court. And you remember 
part of the parameters that he wanted to discuss in that, why, why he wanted to have her in there. He wanted to have someone who was compassionate, who could feel. That's a very postmodern way of looking at things. In fact, here's our president right now. There's an interview down in 2004 in the Chicago Sun-Times. Do you believe in sin? Yes, of course I do. What is sin? Sin is being out of alignment with my values. <laughs> now he's serious about this and he believes this. Are you born again? Oh, yeah, although I don't, I you know, he's, he's hedging here. I retain from my childhood a suspicion of dogma. And I'm not comfortable with language that implies I've got a monopoly on truth. I'm a big believer in tolerance. I think that religion at its best comes with a big dose of doubt. I'm suspicious of too much certainty in the pursuit of understanding. Uncertainty is something that postmoderns are not afraid of. They embrace it. Brian McLaren is one of the lead spokespeople for the emerging church movement. Uh, it's interesting how he got into this thing. In the 70s, he came up against something in his education called um, deconstructionism, literary deconstructionism. Any of you familiar with that? Uh, what does it mean to construct something? Build. When you put the letters DE before, that's kind of the opposite. Take the con out, and it's actually destructionism. In essence, what's going on in literary deconstructionism is that someone like Harold writes a document and then everyone else gets to take a look at it and there's no sense that uh, anyone has the right interpretation. When I was in college, maybe you had the same experience as well. We had uh, literature class and we'd read these stories and then we'd sit around and try to figure out what they were talking about. Right? Some of these guys were still alive and I thought, just call them up. We can find this out. <laughs> So Brian McLaren, uh, this is his on a, uh, a flyleaf of a generous orthodoxy, a book that he wrote. That's an interesting title to think about. Why I am a missional, evangelical, post-Protestant, liberal, conservative, mystical, poetic, biblical, charismatic, contemplative, fundamentalist, Calvinist, Anabaptist, Anglican, Methodist, Catholic, Green, incarnational, this is important, depressed yet hopeful, emergent, unfinished Christian. Aren't you glad he's not an ER doc? <laughs> McLaren goes on I meet people along the way that model for me what a new kind of Christian might look like they differ in many ways but they generally agree that the old show is over the modern jig is up and it's time for something radically new if we have a new world we need a new church we don't need a new religion per se but a new framework for our theology not a new spirit, but a new spirituality. Very important to get this part of it. Not a new Christ, but a new Christian. Leith Anderson is a uh, pastor in Minneapolis. There's a lot of heresy that comes out of Minnesota. <laughs> this is a very instructional quote here. The old paradigm taught that if you had the right teaching, you will experience God. The new paradigm says that if you experience God, you have the right teaching. Ten years ago or so, we had a Bible study in my office for the girls in the office, and it went on for about a year and a half. And one of the gals, who also loves the Lord a great deal, and she's a charismatic and a tongue speaker and all that goes with that, but a really pleasant gal, and she was convicted by some of the stuff that we talked about. Ultimately, she rejected doing anything about it because she was still speaking in tongue, and that was the authentication for her connection with God. See, it's how we feel. That's what makes the difference. Leonard Sweet is a brilliant guy. He's all over the place, including in our schools. 
He's known as a New Age sympathizer. I don't know if that's fair. But he teaches at George Fox University up in Oregon. He has this to say. Very uh, astute guy. A spiritual tsunami has hit the postmodern culture. This wave will build without breaking for decades to come. The wave is this. People want to know God. They want less to know about God or know about religion. Postmoderns want a God they can feel, taste, touch, hear, and smell. A full sensory immersion in the divine. Are you getting a sense of what's going on here? You know, are they wrong about that? Do you want to know God too? Yeah, sure. It's the application of how we go about that. The emerging church has uh, had some hits on their theology. Donald Miller wrote this book called Blue Like Jazz. By the way, last time I checked, he'd sold over a million copies of this book. This is everywhere. For me, the beginning of sharing my faith with people began by throwing out Christianity, embracing Christian spirituality, a non-political, mysterious system that can be experienced but not explained. You cannot be a Christian without being a mystic. Now, for those of us who have this framework in the back of our minds of spiritualism, doesn't that make you kind of perk up a little bit? It's interesting, when you read more of Donald Miller, he has a section in his book where he's talking about how his religion let him down. And he said, I just got sick of the whole thing. I just wanted to know Jesus. That's not a bad thing to do. These people are not bad people. They just don't know what they don't know. Alan Jones is another uh, guy in the emerging movement. This is quite remarkable. The church's fixation on the death of Jesus as a universal saving act must end, and the place of the cross must be reimagined in the Christian faith. Why? Because of the cult of suffering and the vindictive God behind it. Does much of the world have a vindictive view of what God is like? Are they right about that? No, no. If you believe that, would it be reasonable for you to come up with this sort of a statement? The other thread of just criticism addresses the suggestion, suggestion implicit in the cross that Jesus' sacrifice was to appease an angry God. Ellen White talks about this. Penal substitution was the name of this vile doctrine. These people are really misunderstanding God. <clears throat> it didn't come in very well. This picture of Brian McLaren. This, I put this slide in primarily because this is sort of a relevant conversation. Sorry. What we're having going on right now, even in this church, as he goes about this process of rethinking everything he knows, he says this, I didn't start with any interest in rethinking eschatology. I think many of us are starting from the beginning part of rethinking, the relation of faith and science in relation to evolution and young earth creationism. Have we heard something about that recently in this church? Yes. I thought it was all about science. Maybe it's more about postmodernism. You see the difference? Some starting from the end, re-examining eschatology. We'll see this in Adventism here pretty quick. The overwhelming um, eschatology is a form of dominionism. Anyone familiar with dominionism or kingdom now theology? It teaches that the kingdom of God will be set up on earth before Jesus returns. We'll find some interesting things about that coming up. Brian McLaren again, Christians in the 1800s saw nothing but spiritual decline and global destruction. Their only hope, a skyhook second coming, wrapping up the whole of creation like an empty candy wrapper and throwing it in the cosmic dumpster so that God can finally bring our souls to heaven. Does it make you wonder what Christians before 1850 or 1800 thought? See, for many postmoderns, 
<laughs> frame of reference is very narrow. It's us and them just a few hundred years ago. And what did Christians see in the beginning? There's a lot of polar thinking that goes on in some of this stuff that's interesting to think about. If Revelation were a blueprint of the distant future, it would, been, it would have been unintelligible for its original readers and would only become relevant for one generation. Is partly that true? Yes. Yeah. If Revelation is instead an example of literature of the oppressed, it presents each generation with the needed inspiration. In this light, Revelation becomes a book about the kingdom of God here and now available to all. Is that true? But you notice they're not both true. We're trying to make the kingdom of God happen now. Ellen White says, the line of distinction between Christians and the ungodly is now hardly distinguishable. Church members love what the world loves and are ready to join with them, and Satan determines to unite them in one body and thus strengthen his cause by sweeping all into the ranks of spiritualism, Papists, Protestants, and worldlings will alike accept the form of godliness without the power, and they will see in this union, that's spiritualism, a grand movement for the conversion of the world and the ushering in of the long-expected millennium. You know, one of the really marvelous things of this study for me has been the, the reaffirmation of Ellen White's relevance. It's amazing what she has uncovered and knows Eschatology is, is not changed either. What I'd like you to see, and I want to get into New Age too much, but I, what I want you to see is the confluence of ideas, thoughts, and phrases used that come from the New Age. And what's interesting is mostly people are moving toward the New Age. They're not moving toward Christianity. Sadly, the Christian religion has misconstrued the secret message of Jesus entirely. Instead of being about the kingdom of God coming to earth, the Christian religion has too often been preoccupied with escaping the earth and going to heaven. We have betrayed the message that the kingdom of God is available to all. This is a new age person. This is not a Christian. Here, here we are now poised either on the brink of destruction greater than the world has ever seen or on the threshold of global co-creation wherein each person will be attracted to participate in his or her own evolution to godliness. Look at the, the biblical references. In the twinkling of an eye, we are all changed. A peaceful second coming of the divine in us as us. Isn't that something? You are to prepare the way for an alternative to Armageddon, which is the planetary Pentecost, which can transform enough in mass to avoid the necessity of the seventh seal being broken. What's the seventh seal, by the way? That was clear. This is maybe the most important thing to think about, and that is this emerging spirituality or new spirituality and the mysticism that comes with it. <clears throat> John MacArthur is a well-known evangelical in Southern California. Many of you maybe have seen his television program. He says this, the evangelical consensus has shifted decidedly in the past two decades. Our collective message is now short on doctrine and long on experience. Isn't that what we just talked about, this postmodern feeling? Thinking is deemed less important than feeling. The love of sound doctrine has all but disappeared. Add a dose of mysticism to this, and you have the recipe for unmitigated spiritual disaster. Leonard Sweet, again, that's what Leonard looks like. He's an interesting guy, not only being a brilliant guy, he lives in the Northwest, teaches at George Fox University. One of his sons attended an Adventist academy there and was baptized an Adventist. How about that? That put him in a tight spot. 
he says this, and this is really interesting. Mysticism once cast at the sidelines of Christian tradition. By the way, if it's, if it's now at the sidelines, where was it? It used to be in the middle, right? When was it in the middle? When was mysticism central to the Christian faith? The Dark Ages, exactly. Well, now it's situated in a postmodern culture near the center. Too many people are nothing as our empty pews are shouting to us because we give them neither an energy fire experience of Christ nor the Christ of an energy fire experience. I'm not going to take questions because I don't want to look silly, but if anyone has an idea of what he just said, I'd love to hear it <laughs> afterwards. We may help them apprehend reality through mystical speculations, but not the rapture of flow experiences. I have no idea what that's about, but this is remarkable. Mysticism is metaphysics arrived at through mind-body experiences. This is a Christian guy. Mysticism begins in experience and it ends in theology. <laughs> what document do you bring to bear to authenticate the value and the truthfulness of the things you come up with if it's only your experience? Brian McLaren again, many Christian leaders started searching for a new approach under the banner of spiritual formation. This new search has led many of them back to Catholic, that's not right, Catholic contemplative practices and medieval monastic disciplines. How many of you heard of spiritual formation? No, not so many. Spiritual formation, I think I got it here somewhere, involves training that corrects, molds, and perfects the mental faculties and moral character with the ultimate objective to be like Christ. Does that sound like something Adventists can get behind? Oh, absolutely, this is good stuff. It includes spiritual disciplines. Spiritual formation is the process. Spiritual disciplines are the, uh, the methods. They include prayer, meditation, fasting, singing, giving, hospitality, teaching, and solitude, and a bunch of others, I suppose. Brought to us by none other than Ignatius, Kind of interesting to think about that as well. One of those is contemplative prayer. What's interesting to know about New Age, or not sorry, the um, postmodern world, is the way they have overlapping language. Is that right, Herb? Overlapping language? When you think about contemplative prayer, what do you think about? If you're going to marry someone and you begin to con contemplate that thought, what are you doing? Over and over and over in your own mind. Yeah. Contemplative prayer is neither contemplative nor prayer as you know it. It's drawn from ancient prayer practices of Christian contemplative heritage, notably the fathers and mothers of the desert. You need to keep that in mind. It was distilled in the simple method of prayer in the 70s by Trappist monks, Menninger, Pennington, Keating, we'll hear a little bit more from them, Catholic monk Thomas Merton and Quaker Richard Foster, who's still around, contributed much to the contemporary use of contemplative prayer in the church today. This is, this is important. Contemplative prayer contains the notions that true prayer is silent beyond words, beyond thought, does away with false self, triggers transformation of consciousness, and is an awakening. Suggested techniques include breathing exercises, visualization, repetition of a word or phrase, and detachment from thinking. Keating says God's first language is silence. Foster Progress and intimacy with God means progress towards silence. Silence is an important thing to know, to keep in mind as we go through this. Contemplation is pure, virginal knowledge. 
Okay, that sounds you get, what is pure virginal knowledge? This is good stuff, right? Problem is it's poor in concepts and poor still in reasoning. According to Keating, contemplative prayer should be a detachment from thought, getting into a state of no thinking, and that it is time to let go of all thoughts so that only pure awareness exists. Only when we are willing to abandon our human modes of thought. By the way, who gave us our human modes of thought? How does God operate with us? Through those human modes of thought. Only when we give that up and open a welcoming space that the Spirit will begin to operate in us at the divine level. That's the only time He's going to operate in us. When you're not thinking. Uh, what I want you to listen to is where this guy is finding God. Hi, I'm Father Jim Martin. I'm an associate editor of American Magazine and author of My Life with the Saints. Uh, we've been talking about different ways to pray, and last week we talked about Lectio Divina, or uh, sacred reading. This week we're going to talk about centering prayer, um, which is somewhat different than the uh, ways that we've been talking about praying uh, in the past few weeks. Centering prayer, I would say, is a little more uh, contentless uh, and maybe a little more abstract. Uh, there are a couple people who have recently popularized centering prayer in the United States, uh, including Thomas Keating and Basil Pennington, both Trappists. There's three basic steps to centering prayer, and it's pretty easy. The first is you sort of settle yourself down, quiet yourself down. People generally use uh, deep breathing to help them do this, and try to sort of uh, get to a place of quiet. Um, it's usually good to have some physical quiet as well. The second step uh, is to find uh, what you would call a prayer word. You could use the word mantra as well. And the idea would be to choose a word that you can kind of center on or that will sort of hold your uh, interest, basically, or kind of keep you grounded. Uh, a lot of people like to use God or Jesus or love or peace, something like that. But it doesn't have to be that specific. It could be something uh, that could be something like uh, the word rest. Um, Anyway, uh, you use that word to sort of ground yourself. The third step is basically when you find yourself uh, slipping away from uh, your centeredness, from your groundedness, you can return to that word sort of gently. It's a way of anchoring yourself uh, in the prayer. Now, what are we doing in centering prayer? We're obviously not just doing this to clear our minds. We're doing it to come in contact with God who dwells within us. You know, people used to say and still say uh, that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we believe that God is dwelling within us in our conscience, but also in our soul. Uh, God is closer to me than I am to myself, uh, wrote one Christian spiritual writer. So the idea is that you're going into yourself to discover God. Now, what can happen in centering prayer? Well, lots of things. Uh, even if you just feel a sense of peace and consolation with God, that's a wonderful thing. Um, but you could have all sorts of things happen, as in other prayers. Um, insights can come. I think insights are very important in prayer. Uh, intellectual insights about something that you've been wondering about or something that you've been... Where did we find God? This comes from the website at the bottom you see there. I'll cover that. The influence of Buddhism and Hinduism on a contemplative prayer is apparent. Words such as detachment, transformation, emptiness, enlightenment, awakening, and swim in and out of the waters of contemplative prayer. We should not hesitate as Christians, are you ready, to take the fruit of age-old wisdom of the East and capture it for Christ. Indeed, those of us who are in the ministry should make the effort, that make the necessary effort to acquaint ourselves with as many of these Eastern techniques as possible. 
Many Christians who take their prayer life seriously have been greatly helped by yoga, Zen, transcendental meditation, and have a solidly developed Christian faith to give inner form and meaning to the resulting experiences. Kind of an interesting quote there, isn't it? This is not new. This is not postmodern. God's been dealing with this forever. This is kind of interesting because this, uh, well, I'll just read it. <laughs> I presented centering prayer in my usual way, wondering what the chords of response this call to faith and love might be striking in the Hindu monk. This guy was centering with a Hindu monk. We soon entered into the prayer and enjoyed that beautiful fullness of silence. Remember, this is something you experience but can't explain. As we came out of the experience, I shot a glance at my Eastern friend. He said, that has been the most beautiful experience I've ever had. This is a Hindu monk, and he's just reached God, some God. A Jesuit friend of mine once told me that he approached a Hindu guru for initiation in the art of prayer. The guru said, concentrate on your breathing. My friend proceeded to do that for five minutes. Then the guru said, the air you breathe is God. You are breathing God in and out. Become aware of that and stay with that awareness. Many of you will recognize that as pantheism. Very quickly, pantheism is belief there is no personal God. God is merely the essence of the divine that is in all things. Somewhat related to panentheism, which is the belief there is a God being who is in all things. Suma Kidd was an interesting uh, Sunday school teacher. She became somewhat um, disenchanted with her experience, and she said, you know, I need something deeper, and became involved in the contemplative prayer movement. And she says this, and you see, I want you to see the connection here between her contemplative prayer and her pantheism. If I am intent on centering my life in the presence of God, then I must understand what I believe about where this presence can be found. God became the steam in my soup, the uprooted tree, the graffiti on the building, and the rust on the fence. Ellen White says this a long time ago, uh, 8T291, wherever season is. Already there are coming in among us among our people, spiritualistic teachings that undermine the faith of those who give heed to them. The theory that God is in essence pervading all nature is one of Satan's most subtle devices. Pantheistic theories are not sustained by the word of God. These theories sweep away the whole Christian economy and make man his own savior. I want you to remember that last line because we're going to hear from Sue Monk Kidd again in just a couple of minutes. This contemplative movement also has uh, ramifications for ecumenism. Ellen White, and they were very familiar with this, Protestants of the United States will be foremost in stretching their hands across the gulf to grasp the hand of spiritualism. What do you, what do you understand grasping the hand to mean? They will reach over the abyss to clasp hands with the Roman power, and under the influence of this threefold union, this country will follow in the steps of Rome in trampling on the rights of conscience. It is my sense since Basil Pennington from having meditated from persons from many different traditions that in the silence we experience deep unity. When we go beyond the portals of the rational mind, remember we can't be thinking. In that experience there is only one God, the common experience of all persons that when we sit together centering, we experience a solidarity that cuts through our theological differences. Tilden Edwards, in the wider ecumenism of the spirit open for us today, we need to humbly accept the learning of particular Eastern religions. Humbly. What makes a practice Christian is not its source, but its intent. 
If we view the human family as one in God's spirit, then this historical cross-fertilization is not surprising. Selective attention to Eastern practices can be of great assistance in the Christian life. Matthew Fox, an Episcopal priest, says, Without mysticism, there will be no deep ecumenism. For those of you, I don't know what your experience has been. Mine has been that growing up, ecumenism was all about political expediency. We've seen some of that recently in the issues of abortion, the gay marriage. Churches of, of different strains came together to, to, to work on some project together. This is, a, this is a whole new kind of ecumenism. He goes on to say, no unleashing of the power of wisdom for all, from all the world's religious traditions. Without this, I'm convinced there will never be global peace or justice. The promise of ecumenism, the coming together of religions, has been thwarted because world religions have not been relating on the level of mysticism. Uh, I want you to see this. I hope this works. This is a, a new age kind of a thing. And um, you've got to read quickly. But what I want you to see is the cross-fertilization of Christianity and Eastern religions. Mother Teresa is quoted here.
Thomas Merton was uh, quoted in there saying that contemplation helps him love his brothers for who they are and not what they say. Turns out Thomas Merton spent a good share of every day in a tool shed in solitude. If you had your kids in a different room, they'd get along great, wouldn't they? <laughs> there are some warnings of contemplative uh, spirituality. This is very interesting to think about. Richard Foster is a contemporary, claims that practitioners must use caution when involving themselves in contemplative prayer. He admits that in contemplative prayer we are entering deeply into the spiritual realm and that sometimes it is not the realm of God even though it is supernatural. He admits there are unfriendly spirits being present and that a prayer of protection should be said beforehand. All dark and evil spirits must leave. <laughs> Where do you find a biblical precedent for that? And how would you do that? If you're going to get on your knees to pray, would it be one knee to say, God, I'm going to... It's almost like, uh, what was that uh, game show where you open the different doors? You're hoping you get the right door where God is, but if you get another one, you're hoping nothing goes bad. It's remarkable that he would understand this, that what he's involving himself in, he knows he has enough awareness of what's going on that he knows the risks. This is Sumon Kid again. I wonder whether this went through Eve's mind. The minister was preaching. He was holding up a Bible. He was saying that the Bible was the sole authority for the Christian's life. I remember feeling a feeling rising up within me. If the feelings could be translated in English, they would have been the word no. It was the purest knowing I had experienced, and it was shouting no, no, no. The ultimate authority of my life is not the Bible. It is not confined between the covers of a book. It is not something written by men and frozen in time. It is not from a source outside of myself. My ultimate authority is the divine voice in my soul. You remember Ellen White's comment that this would make man his own savior? So what? What difference does it make? This might be just an interesting sociological thing to, to think about. There are some eschatological ramifications that we ought to think about. But what happens in this, we, when we began, we started talking about deception and that perhaps deception would find its most keenest efforts among us. We've seen this before. In 1903, the church was in conflict over whether to publish a new book by John Harvey Kellogg entitled The Living Temple. This book was initially conceived to provide financial support for building a new educational center in Battle Creek, but was found, found to contain profound error. What kind of profound error? Ellen White says in his presentation he cloaked the matter somewhat, but in reality he was presenting scientific theories akin to pantheism. This is what we've been talking about. We, isn't it interesting how the devil uses the same playbook and it comes around again and again, slightly repackaged, and we're, we fall for it? In the book Living Temple, there is presented the alpha of deadly heresies. The omega will follow. I'm not willing to say this is the omega, but boy, you got to wonder, don't you? And will be received by those who are not willing to heed the warning God has given. The Living Temple contains the alpha of these theories. The omega would follow in a little while. I tremble for our people. These beautiful representations are similar to the temptation the enemy brought to Adam and Eve in Eden. When but a girl, I went to New Hampshire to bear warning against these same doctrines. There was a man who was preaching higher spirituality. A.G. Daniels, and I have his reference here somewhere, far-reaching plans were then laid for the establishment of a great educational center in Battle Creek. In this college, the students would certainly have become indoctrinated with subtle teachings of the new philosophy. 
which was prominently advocated by leading members of the faculty. So we see this stuff moving into our educational facilities. By the way, if you want to get control of a country and you've got a little bit of time, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, look who's, oh, I can't be political. He goes on to say, our youth should not go to Battle Creek where their faith would be undermined. Uh, I want you to think uh, what that might mean. Brendan Manning is a one-time Catholic priest. He's retired. Um, he is a very popular speaker. He's a popular author. He has some interesting things to say like this. The first step in faith is to stop thinking about God at the time of prayer. You all do that, right? <laughs> Contemplative spirituality tends to emphasize the need for a change in consciousness, maybe unconsciousness. We must come to see reality differently. Choose a single sacred word. Remember our priest said mantra. Where did he get that word, by the way? Oh, that's right, the Eastern religions. Repeat the word inwardly, slowly, and often. Enter the great silence of God. Alone in that silence, the voice of love will be heard. Um, this came from a school paper, one of our colleges, as a result of Manning's uh, presentation at that college. It says, Brennan Manning is more than a Roman Catholic. He's also an ex-priest and recovering alcoholic. As far as anyone remembers, he is the first non-adventist to be invited to take the pulpit for this special week of prayer. It may be a sign of, and then the name of the school, spiritual maturity that we recognize him as a deeply committed brother in Christ. It may be something else, too. <laughs> Tony Campolo is a very popular speaker and has been for many years. Uh, he is a well-known contemplative. The guy's a nice guy, though. I mean, he does a tremendous work for the poor. He's a great advocate for justice, and, and, and you know, there's nothing wrong with some of this stuff. Um, but he wants to get back to that postmodern notion that we can find some things that we left behind a long time ago. After the Reformation, we Protestants left behind much that was troubling about Roman Catholicism. It's true. I'm convinced that we left too much behind. The methods of praying employed by Ignatius have become precious to me. With the help of some Catholic saints, my prayer life has deepened. I learned about this of having a born-again experience from reading the Catholic mystics, especially the spiritual exercises of Ignatius of Loyola. Like most Catholic mystics, he developed an intense desire to experience oneness with God. Ignatius also developed an intense desire to separate the heads from the bodies of Protestants. Intimacy with Christ has developed gradually over the years, primarily through what the Catholic mystics call centering prayer. Each morning as I wake up, I take time to center myself on Jesus. I say his name over and over again. Jesus is my mantra. I'm able to create what the ancient Celtic Christians called the thin place. Um, well, go back. This, this was given, this particular part was shared on a Friday evening in one of our universities. Um, Leonard Sweet, uh, this is kind of interesting. We've read this before. I'd like to read it again. Mysticism once cast to the sidelines and so on. Um, mysticism begins in experience. It ends in theology. Bear in mind this guy is brilliant. He was voted by whoever votes these things, one of the 50 most influential evangelicals in the country. He has all sorts of warm and wonderful things to say about God, as all these guys do. But he's got some other things going on, doesn't he? This guy was given the pulpit at our largest university in this, this past January. 
Um, I have a patient in my practice that I've seen for a long time, and through all of that time, he suffered with his weight. Anybody recognize that? I mean, you have that problem? He came in one day, and he had lost a bunch of weight. And my hygienist said, hey, look how uh, much weight he's lost. And, um, and then she said, you know, you think people are behind you, and they do stuff like this? My hygienist said, well, Dr. Yeager's on a diet, too. And they said, how much have you lost? And at that time, I'd lost three or four pounds, which you can do playing nine holes of golf and skipping supper. You know, it wasn't anything to talk about. Well, he'd lost 60 to 70 pounds in about eight months. Well, he turned around and said, how did you do it? And, you know, I live close to Weimar, so I said, well, I'm eating weeds and twigs and embracing hunger. And I said, how did you do it? I'm trying to get it back on him. And he said, I'm eating pig fat and butter and eating all I want. You, you recognize the Atkins diet. Marvelous way to lose weight quick, right? What keeps me, I mean, if we were both dieters, which we were, sort of, why wouldn't I take his diet? Yeah, I don't want his kidneys, do I? Or his blood panel. It's what you know that makes a difference. So you say, well, our kids know a lot, and they certainly won't be taken in by these guys. This was done uh, a little over a year ago in the Northwest. This is Bailey Gillespie, many of you will recognize, the Value Genesis update letter. 20% of pre-college youth believe in the sanctuary doctrine. So let me, let me go back and flesh it out a little bit. If I'm aware that if I eat certain ways, I'm going to die from certain things, I'm not going to do that, right? That knowledge is the difference between getting involved in a diet that will kill me, but I'll look really good for a while, okay? It's that knowledge that makes a difference. In the similar way, our doctrines do the same thing for us and our kids. They help us understand the world in which we live. They help us sort of codify the God that we know and, and understand how he operates. We hope our kids get that too. 20% of our pre-college youth believe in the sanctuary doctrine. 36 believe in Ellen White. 42% believe in the remnant. Not too bad. <laughs> Keep in mind that we're losing more than half of our kids. This is troubling. When you ask the remnant question to college and university students, you can't even get a score. It's less than 1% of Adventist kids in college believe anything about the remnant. The ex ex exclusivity of this doctrine doesn't make any sense to them. They're already postmodern, and we miss that chance to explain what Adventism is all about. What chance do they have against understanding what these brilliant guys bring to them? It's new, it's exciting, it's cutting edge, and they have no idea what's on the other end. Let me just go back... <laughs> All right, I've got a little bit of time. Why is it that we take our kids at a time when they are at the pinnacle of the formation parts of their life where they're developing this sort of worldview, a scaffolding or a sieve through which all their life experiences will go through? Every one of their decisions will be made based on this understanding of, of what the world is like. So we find them at that time and we give them stuff like this. Does it change them overnight? No. I listened to two of the three sermons that Leonard Sweet gave at our university, and they were good sermons, by the way. Next time those kids go to a bookstore and they see a book by Leonard Sweet, they'll say, hey, this guy's great. And they'll learn about the energy flow experiences. This, this shouldn't happen. <laughs> Amen. Amen. <laughs> Amen. The king did not compel. This is about, uh, well, you'll get it. 
The king did not compel the Hebrew youth to renounce their faith in favor of idolatry, but he hoped to bring this about gradually. By giving them names significant of idolatry, by bringing them daily into close association with the rite of heathen worship, he hoped to induce them to renounce the religion of their nation and unite with the worship of the Babylonians. You don't need to do it quickly. And in fact, you know, in a postmodern world, you don't really need to convince them of anything. You just need to give them enough doubt and distraction where they don't know what to do with it, and they leave it alone and say, I can't deal with that, I'm moving on. I appreciated Elder Paulson's letter that came in response to the creation uh, flap that was around a few months ago. Thank you, David. And in there he said, you know, it is the responsibility of our professors to take them on these journeys. And I think, look, we ought to embrace academic investigation and exploration and freedom. Intellectual exploration is important, and the venue to do it is in the university setting. There's no question about that. But he went on to say, but when you take them on that journey, make sure you bring them home again. <laughs> this is our Adventist Review, January 29, 2004. Excerpts from the gentle whisper connecting with the divine through solitude. This is our Advent. This is our flagship um, paper. In the fourth century, men and women entered the desert in a movement known as monastic movement. These desert fathers exited society to lead a, a contemplative life of prayer. I've had a fascination with these men and have learned much about spiritual discipline of silence. Signs of the Times, Australia. I think it's about the same vintage, 2004. Stillness is golden is the name of the article. Contemplation is essentially a wordless, is essentially wordless, but its core cry is, I consent to your presence and action within me. One method called Centering Prayer encourages you to refocus on God by internally saying one of the names of God that relate to you. This can help you be present to God again, whatever that means. You know, I put this up for a reason. I, I asked Don if he got it, and he got it. Remember, dominionism is that thing that we can make the kingdom of God if we do the right things and get it all together in this life. Isn't that what Nebuchadnezzar did in Daniel 3? He, he said, no, God doesn't know what's going on. I can fix this. This is from a, um, an Adventist senior pastor. This is from his website. This is about eschatology and end-time events. I've been saying this for quite some time. The Seventh-day Adventists love to talk about the end of the world, the destruction of the earth, and so forth. Yet the more I studied the Bible, the more I come to the conclusion that nothing could be more inconsistent with the overall message of Scripture than a God who destroys the earth. I'm not sure what to do with 2 Peter 3. First of all, God created, God six times calls his creation good and finished it by calling it very good. Second, and, and look at the condensate, condensate, never mind. Second, yeah, there you go, condescension. Second, God experimented once, experimented once <laughs> with destroying the earth. Remember the flood? That would be a meta narrative, and that didn't happen. And he decided that wasn't a good solution. He promised never to do that again. You kids ever done that? I'll never do that again. Third, the whole redemption project is about restoration and renewal. That's true, not destruction. That's not true. The overall purpose of God is not the destruction of the earth, but the renewal of the earth. No, it's the renewal of us. We need to read Revelation again and get this straight. I periodically get questions from people who read this blog. They ask me, okay, so if this is true, what does that mean for our Adventist eschatology? I'll ask you that question. This is not a good thing. I wish I had a great answer for what he does. 
I'm not going to answer it here, but it needs to be worked on. Is Adventism really married to a particular sequence of events that must transpire exactly like we say and exactly in the order that we say? By the way, did we say any of this? Um, just a postscript on this. This, uh, this guy is a leading member of Adventist Emergent. Uh, lest you think he's on the periphery of what things are or how things are going, he was recently the author of an article in the Adventist Review within a year. How about Adventist Centering Prayer? Do we have that? Well, it turns out we do. This is a book that you can pick up in your ABC, written by a very well-known Adventist scholar and theologian, and I wish him well. A good example of short prayer is the Jesus Prayer. The prayer is biblically based and says simply, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. The Orthodox tradition repeats the prayer many, many times until it moves from the head to be the constant melody of the heart. It's an interesting literary convention, but I'm not sure what that means. Francis of Assisi prayed all night saying, Jesus, my Jesus, Jesus, my Jesus. Can you imagine that? I mean, do that for a while. Referencing Jesus' instruction not to pray using vain repetitions, our author says this, short prayers I suggest here are not meaningless. Now, do you think the pagans that recommended all that kind of prayer said the same thing? Uh, this isn't meaningless. No, any repetition, repetition suggested seeks to deepen communion. Evidently, Jesus himself practiced repetition in his praying. Do any of you know what Matthew 26, 44 is all about? This is Jesus praying for three times in Gethsemane. Now you think that through. Here he is, he is, think about that. You've got to be pretty strongly agenda driven to buy into this and to take this mindless repetitive drivel of contemplative prayer and compare that metaphorically with what Jesus did in Gethsemane. This is remarkable. This is an Adventist theologian. This is a guy that was once, not too long ago, president of one of our universities. These are our kids. He goes on to say, another method of praying is the use of one's own breathing. Since most religious traditions practice it, can we consider it Christian? Well, yes, we can if the content and context are simple. Are, I'm sorry, if the content and context are Christian. <sighs> Is that true, by the way? <laughs> We're talking about methods. If the methods are really good in their intention, are they useful to do? I mean, they're Christian, right? We want the best for us, so we, we, we can do those things. Brian McLaren, in a wonderful piece of honesty, says this. It has been fashionable among the innovative pastors I know to say, we're not changing the message, we're only changing the medium. This claim is probably less than honesty. how to tell our author that. In the new church, we must realize how the medium and the message are intertwined. When we change the medium, the message that's received is changed as well. We might as well get beyond our denial about this. Um, a number of years ago, Sharon and I were attending a camp meeting at a distance, and we went to the young adult tent, and that'll help you understand how long ago that's been. And the guy that was doing the presentation had a marvelous, stirring message. And afterwards, he sat down on his keyboard and he began to play. And after he played for a while, he closed his eyes and he came up next to the microphone and he said, let's worship. And I remember at the time thinking, that's odd, I thought I just was. <laughs> Why do you worship? 
when we look at Revelation 12, 13, and 14, what are the key issues in that passage? It's who you worship, why you worship, how you worship. I think this is really important. I don't want to get next door to Ivor Meyer's presentation, but in this church we have quite an ongoing conversation about music, and we often hear that it's just about style. I have an opinion. I don't think it's about style. I think it's about physiology. Not too many weeks ago, Ivor Myers was at Weimar for convocation. He made an interesting comment. He said, you know, you can test music very easily. It's called the neck test. You know what the neck test is? You hear this music going, and pretty soon your neck's going like this. <laughs> He's talking about a physiologic response. What I want you to know, I hope I can get this out in a way that's clear. When we began to confuse a physiologic response with what is worship, we have intertwined message and method, and it comes to the place where method becomes the message. And now, how many of you have been in churches where they have worship leaders? What do worship leaders typically, who, what are they typically involved with? Music, Music right. And so when worship becomes a lot of this kind of stuff, it becomes physiology. When we get to the place where physiology, we see physiology as worship, or we view worship as physiologic response, do you understand how short of a distance there is from there to the step where we find any stimulus, even contemplative prayer, that provides that physiologic response? <laughs> A couple, three weeks ago, I was at AFCO for the new class, and Don McIntosh had the Vespers, and he talked about the seven um, miracles Jesus performed on the Sabbath. One of those is a woman who was informed, infirmed for 18 years. She was bent over. Now, I've never been bent over like that, except when I'm golfing, and that's something else entirely. But this woman was bent over, and you've seen people like that. What does it say about a God who is infinite in majesty and power, who is willing to bend over and straighten that lady up? Isn't that a reason to worship him? Amen. Doug Basher tells a story about Jesus and his disciples coming off the lake, and they're met by the demoniacs. And you remember the story. Uh, the, the disciples run off. The demoniacs are naked and out of their mind and blood cut all over themselves. When the disciples return... He is clothed and in his right mind. Who gave him those clothes? Who washed his hair? Help people to focus on the present situation in preparation to hear God's word, sometimes called centering down. It seeks to minimize distraction and let people concentrate as much as they can on God's word. I ask people to relax their bodies. Occasionally should, people should become conscious of their breathing. I urge them to savor that presence. Have we heard that kind of talk before? We have. Uh, Ray Youngen is a critic of the Emerging Church Movement. He's got some books uh, that are worth reading. I wonder how it is possible that Christians can use the same techniques that Buddhists and Hindus use to reach their gods without, in fact, reaching their gods. Uh, this is also in our book, Begin with a Brief Prayer for God's Presence, Guidance, and Protection from Evil Influence. When we become quiet and open to God, we simply want to make sure that anything that happens is under Jesus' leadership. <laughs> what would happen? 
And remember this, we read this a while ago. Richard Foster says uh, all these supernatural beings that are out there, prayer protection should always be said beforehand. Ellen White talks about this, interestingly enough, writing in the context of Kellogg's book, The Living Temple, and its pantheistic influences. She says, we need not the mysticism that is in this book. Those who entertain these sophistries will soon find themselves in a position where the enemy can talk to them and lead them away. Is that what Richard Foster is worried about? Um, this is a film clip that goes about three minutes. Uh, it, is, <laughs> it is an Adventist university. single day this month 
a full hour to sit and be contemplative, to pray and to listen. The longer I do it throughout this month, the more I am finding myself, I'm not praying, I'm not talking, I am simply listening and allowing God to do what God does in life. I'm allowing myself to be stripped naked in front of God and listen to what it is that he has to say to me. And that's very hard for me. What the de desert fathers call apathia. Now this is where the word apathetic comes from, and that's a bad thing. But in, for the desert fathers in the 3rd, 4th, and 5th century, these monastic guys who would go out into the desert, would live in caves, they were seeking apathia, which is the imperturbable calm. And one thing I like, because some people will dwell, will, will dwell deep within Scripture. Some people will just simply be quiet and pray. Some people will find that the traditions of early church fathers and different faith traditions that will, that will give them a connection with Jesus Christ. Prayers that have been said before. Did you see what he, what he advised there, that some of those church fathers and those early experiences... This is um, the official young adult ministry for Loma Linda University, and he's the head uh, pastor. He is, by the way, getting a doctorate at George Fox University in emerging culture. The guy who um, invited Leonard Sweet to our other university uh, also has a doctorate in emerging culture from George Fox University with Leonard Sweet. He has now been installed as a senior pastor of another university um, in our system. Ellen White says, and I'll make this quick, be careful how you sustain the sentiments of this book regarding the personality of God as the Lord presents matters to me. These sentiments do not bear the endorsement of God. They are the snare of the enemy as prepared for these last days. Many things are stated in a vague and undefined way. Statements are made in such a way that nothing is sure. What we need to know at this time is what is truth that will enable us to win the salvation of our souls. And I added this question, and the souls of our children. What is our responsibility? With stern and commanding voice, Elijah cries, How long ye halt between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. <laughs> in this fearful crisis, in the presence of an idolatrous priest and apostate king, they remain neutral. If God abhors one sin above another, of which his people are guilty, it is doing nothing in the case of emergency. Indifference and neutrality in a religious crisis is regarded of God as a grievous crime and equal to the very worst type of hostility against God. Um, we're out of time. This is what we covered. Uh, I hope this has been useful for you. I'm supposed to say something about audioverse. I've forgotten what it is, season. Um, thanks for being so helpful and so uh, attentive. Oh, yeah. Um, I also have, for your viewing pleasure, just come and get uh, a page. I've got 100 pages of these things. It's on, a, it's on a pad of paper. And it simply is a resource guide. It gives you a handful of websites, emerging church websites, books you can read, good stuff to get you started. The best uh, tool to use in this is Google. Try doing that. That's a good thing. Um, and I'll leave it at that. Let's... Um, Pray before we go. Heavenly Father, we are reminded again of the subtlety and the sophistication of Satan's deceptions in these last moments. We, uh, we ask above all else that we will be aware of these things, that we will be faithful in these things, that we will be willing to speak out about these things for the sake of your name and, the forsake, and for the sake of our children. We just pray that you'll bless this conference as never before. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.
This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.